Dear congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, and we'll read the entire chapter. Let us hear God's word. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. Now therefore, behold the cry, the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which, with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God 
But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even, by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely, of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Amen. May God bless his precious and infallible word. We also would like to confess with the Belgic Confession, Article 1, what we believe about our God. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being who we call God, and that he is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. Well, dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we continue our series on Behold Your God, we've already seen indeed our God exists and He is the only great God and there really is no rival to who our God is. He is not a God of gods. He is the God. And there is none else. And we realize, especially as we come to Exodus chapter 3, a story that is well known to all of us, and really even one of um, the characteristics of our federation in the burning bush. And we recognize uh, this, this story, and we've probably heard it from our very youth up, how Moses was born and how he was, he was supposed to be put to death by, uh, as a baby already, but was saved in the bulrushes and brought into uh, really the care of Pharaoh's daughter and there grew up and then he gets into an argument with someone else and because of because of uh, two people fighting and uh, Hebrew lost and, and so Moses uh, ends up really having to flee and he flees to Midian out of fear for losing his life even in Egypt. And there in Midian, as he's tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, he, he's led into the desert and he comes to Mount Horeb, really the mountain of God where he gave his law in Exodus 20. And there we find that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in that flame in the midst of a bush. And, and there the bush was burning and Moses looks at the bush and it's not being consumed and he's He's puzzled by this, and he turns aside, and, and he looks at it even closer. And from the bush, God addresses him, Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. And God commissions then Moses to, to go and to deliver his people out of Egypt and to bring them to the promised land. And he promises to be with him as, as he commissions him to do so. And Moses has a very important question for God in verse 13. He says to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, 
the God of your fathers has sent me to them, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses these words, I am who I am. And he says, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. And then he goes on to say, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. The question we have before us this afternoon is who is the I am who I am? And I'd like to answer that with continuing our series of sermons then on Behold Your God by with the theme, Behold the I Am Who I Am. I would like to see this in three thoughts. The three thoughts, first of all, beholding the nature of God, who He is, especially as He's revealed in this, in this account. Secondly, beholding the attributes of God. And thirdly, as we begin to look at those attributes, beholding our eternal God. Behold the I Am Who I Am, the nature of God. When we think about who God is, the first thing I want to bring up in his nature is the fact that we confess in the Belgic Confession and and we know from Scripture that God is simple. Simple. He has a simple nature. And you say, Pastor, what do you mean by that truth, that God is simple? I know the doctrine of the Trinity and you preached upon it maybe a couple times already when you've been here and I've heard countless sermons on the Trinity of God and there's nothing simple about explaining who God is in His triune being. And yet we recognize that we have to ground ourselves in the fact that God is simple. That doesn't mean He can be simply understood or comprehended. That doesn't mean He's simple and and not very smart or anything like that. But God is simple in the fact that there's nothing that makes up our God that has been before Him. In other words, God is not divided into many gods like a polytheist would believe, that, that there are many gods who make up the God. No, Even though God is triune, and that's what we confess, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He's one in His essence and His very nature. God is one. God is simple. God is not a God who is in things or consists of things, like a pantheist would believe, that that God is in all of nature. God simply says, I am who I am. He is simple. Which... Which is really saying that God doesn't have any, any really any spatial parts to him. You can't categorize God. You can't put him in a box, in other words. There's nothing that can contain him. As a matter of fact, that's, that's what we talk about, God being so big and so immense, as it were. And, and when we talk about God being so big, we could, we could think about uh, a, a two-liter bottle of soda. And we can think about that, and we can think about how that 
bottle holds two liters and, and that's the capacity of it and that's the spatial nature of it. It's going to be contained in that. We could, we could think about that and we could think about a bigger volume of water. We could think about a swimming pool that might hold thousands of liters. Or we could think about the ocean that holds countless thousands of liters. And we could think about the universe that could hold I don't know how many liters, but but a vast amount of liters. And yet, God couldn't even be confined to that space of the universe of which we can't even find the end of ourselves as humans. God is not confined. He is great. He's, he's, He's simply who He is. And He's everywhere. And He has no bounds. Nothing can contain Him. We also need to recognize he's simple in the fact that he doesn't have parts to his body like we do. He doesn't have a hand and he doesn't have fingers and and eyes and ears and so on. Even though in our passage we find that God sees, he does see, but he doesn't need eyes to see. He's going to bring them out by a mighty hand, but he, he, he doesn't necessarily have a hand. We call that God condescending to us so that we can understand who He is. We can identify with what He does in His works, but not a picture of who He is in His person, in His being, in His nature. He doesn't necessarily have to have a hand to say He's going to lead them out with a mighty hand. It's what we call an anthropomorphic term, a description of who God is in His work by uh, something we might understand. We also find in our passage really what we call a theophany. And that is where God appears in a form, as it were, in time. He appears to Moses in a burning bush as the angel of the Lord. And so on. So many times we also find these these theophanies throughout Scripture. But we especially find in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ that Our God even took upon himself our flesh and became like us, something he never was before for all eternity. So God doesn't have parts to him. He's he's simple and simply a spirit. And especially as we look at who God is and his characters, especially as what we'll see in our second point, we need to recognize that that God isn't part love and part justice and part goodness and, and, and have so many parts of his characteristics that makes him who he is. But rather, God is simple in all of his characteristics, all of his attributes. And so therefore, we need to recognize that, that God is, is good. He's not just simply having goodness. He is good. God doesn't just simply act loving. He is love, as John says in 1 John. And so what we recognize here is, even in this passage in which we read, that God is a covenant-keeping God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the promises that he made. It's not that God is just covenantal in his covenant-keeping, but God in his very essence is being, is covenantal. It's who God is. And everything we know about God in all of his characteristics, in all of his attributes, all of it is essential. Not a one thing is non-essential. Suddenly, 
The simplicity of God doesn't sound so simple any longer, does it? And yet we confess that God is one simple being with one simple essence. And he is who he is. I am who I am. And we recognize that that simplicity is also a simplicity in spirit, that God does not have a physical body. If he did, he would not be invisible. He couldn't be in two places at one time. We can't limit God. We need to recognize that God in, as a spirit is so transcendent, so much higher than us, and yet, and yet we recognize that he condescends to come and to see and to know and, and, and to identify with his people. And Moses here at the burning bush. No, Moses couldn't see God. And nor was God confined to this bush. But rather, God was revealing himself through it to Moses. And so when we talk about who God is and, and, and being his, in his transcendence, it's his greatness that he is far superior to anything that we could even comprehend. Um, we need to acknowledge this as we understand the very nature of God. But we also need to realize that God in his greatness is self-existent. Not only is he simple and spiritual, he's self-existent. He says, I am who I am. And that's, that's really what he's What's at the heart of this is God doesn't need anything else or anyone else to give him his existence. There was nothing before God to create his existence. No, God was not created. God does not need a counselor. And so when Moses is, is wondering, who, who, who am I to go before Pharaoh? The I am says to him, I will send you. The I am will send you. The self-existent one will send you. The all-wise God will send you. And you can go because the I am has sent you. He is a self-existent God. We saw that earlier a bit already. I don't want to belabor that point, but, but it's good to note here in our passage because it's really the focus really here of the I am who I am. But lastly, I want to point out, especially from our passage of the nature of God, is that he's relational. He's relational even within his triune being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What, three persons in one essence. Right in his own triune being, he is relational. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have a perfect relationship within them. And they created man in their own image, in his own image. In the image of God created he them as relational creatures. And that's why we have husbands and wives and, and, and the relationships that God gives even in, even in, uh, even in marriage and, and in families and in, in, in congregations as brothers and sisters in Christ. We see God creating that order in society, a relational order. We find that in Abraham, that God comes and makes a relationship, a covenant with Abraham. He, he remembers that covenant 
for Israel here in Exodus 3 as his son is in Egypt and he wants to deliver his son out of Egypt. He has a relationship with his people in Egypt. And ultimately, he has a relationship with his only begotten son whom he sends to this earth to take away the sting of death and to take away the shame of death and to make us holy and righteous in his sight that he might adopt us as sons and daughters of his kingdom that we might be brought into a relationship with him. From Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, God shows himself as a relational God, a God who is self-existent, a God who is spiritual, and a God who is simple. I am who I am. That's the very nature of God. Let me think about, let's think about the, the attributes of God. That's our second point, the I am who I am, the very attributes of God. Many times when we talk about the attributes of God, we're talking about his perfections. That's another word for it, his perfections. And and they're, they're really the characteristics or the attributes of God that are absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. You can't make them any better. And through his attributes, we can know who God is. We can know who God is. Well, Pastor, I, I, thought, you'd, I thought when we were reading um, the Belgic Confession, Article 1, that that we confess that God was incomprehensible. So how can you tell me that now he's knowable? Well, to comprehend something is different than knowing. We cannot fully understand and comprehend who God is and how he works. He's, He's far above us in every respect. We need to acknowledge that. He's far beyond our comprehension and what we can experience and and truly understand in this life. But we also need to realize that God can be known. He can be known. Now, not everyone agrees with this. Obviously, an agnostic says, well, God can't be known at all. And, And maybe a skeptic says that God cannot be truly known. But really, we need to understand that God can be known through his word, and through his creation. But we need to recognize at the same time that God is far beyond anything that we could ever even imagine. We, we, we can't even begin to comprehend who God is. I, I know for, that, for, my, for myself as I went to seminary for, for over four years and, and, and there... Um, I thought maybe I'd learn, I'll learn about who God is, right? And how to preach his gospel. And, and yet the, the more I learned, the more I, I learned I don't know anything hardly about God. And can, can't comprehend hardly anything about God. The one thing I did come to comprehend is the more I know about him, the more I know that he is incomprehensible, that he can't be fully understood. Because the more we encounter who God is, the more we recognize that there is nothing in this world that compares to who our God is. Remember again how I started. God is simple. 
God is one and, and, and really then all of his attributes are one. And how, how can then we, we not distinguish these attributes and these perfections? Because sometimes we want to see God as a God who, who puts on his hat of love when, when he wants to be with his people and comfort his people and encourage his people. And he puts on the hat of justice when he, when he wants to defend his people and, and even judge people for their sins. Then God's a God of justice and otherwise he's a God of love. But, but that's not true. God cannot be divided in his attributes. His attribute of love is just as perfect as his attribute of justice. And so how do we bring these things together? Well, maybe you can think about it this way. If you have the sun shining brightly and, and you see one light, don't you? You see light and, and you don't think about that until you put a little prism up. And as that light hits that prism, it refracts and, and you, you get the colors, really, of a rainbow. And you get this, this distinguishing character to this light. And yet, yet we realize that light in itself cannot be light unless it has all of those characteristics that shine through that prism as it's refracted. You can't separate them. You can't pull them apart. And so also, in a great, even a greater sense, is God himself and all of his attributes. We can distinguish them. We can learn about who he is in them. But we need to remember that they are all united in one. And so as we look at Exodus chapter 3 and God revealing himself as the I am who I am, he's revealing himself in so many of his attributes in this word and in this historical account of coming to Moses here in Exodus 3. He's telling us that he is the eternal God. He's eternal. Because his name is going to be for an everlasting memorial to all generations. He's the everlasting God. He's an eternal God. And he's a God who is all-knowing and all-seeing. And he sees his people in Egypt and he sees the abuse of the Egyptians and he sees their suffering and he knows it. He's everywhere present as he identifies with them. He's all-powerful to redeem them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He's a God who is holy as Moses comes to this burning bush. God tells him, the ground that you stand on is holy. Take off your sandals because this is holy ground. He's a God who is just or righteous. He's going to bring his righteous judgments upon Egypt and deliver his people. He's a God who loves his people who are in bondage in Egypt and he'll bring them out with his loving, powerful hand. He's gracious to these people. You'll see that throughout the wilderness. You see his mercy and his goodness. Yes, his even overflowing fountain of goodness all at the same time in one passage, in one revelation. I am who I am. These are the perfections of God all bound up in this name. I am who I am. And really, what we find here is many of these perfections and attributes are, 
some some which we call incommunicable. That means that that, that there is no connection between us and God in them. We, we can't say that we are eternal, that, that we have been from eternity and will be to eternity. We can only say that we've been created in time and will live unto eternal, uh, eternity. We can't say that we're everywhere present at the same time, that we have all power or that we see and know all things, but, but God can say them perfectly. But there are also those attributes that are communicable that that we have a measure of a slight measure of we can say that someone is holy or someone acts justly or someone acts lovingly or graciously or good but but those those are dim reflections of being created in the image of god our god is absolutely perfect in all of them that's why many times they call the attributes, the characteristics of God, His perfections. His perfections. But let's take this one step further. Let's look at one of these attributes and begin to apply that to our encouragement by beholding the I am who I am. Let's look at, then in our third point, our eternal God. Our eternal God. In order for God to be the I am who I am, he has to be eternal. Children, if I asked you, if I asked you who made you, who made you? I think most of you would know your catechism well enough and uh, and been taught that you would say, God made me. God created us and gives us life. But then if I ask you, who then created God? Who created God? What then would you say? Maybe you'd be like me, having a a mouthful of teeth. You see, no one could have created God for him to be the I am who I am and to be God. We need to even ask... This isn't even a question we can ask. Because could God possibly even be God if there's something or someone greater who has made him? Or if someone has been before him? It's interesting that Jesus, when claiming to be God, says, before Abraham, I am or I was. He is the eternal God. And countless passages refer to God being eternal or everlasting. Already in Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning of time, God was there. And He was before that, forever, for eternity. And so what we recognize, don't we, is that God is above time. God doesn't even dwell in time. He condescends to know time and to identify it with time and do things in time. But God is not associated with time in His being, in who He is. Because God has created time. God doesn't have a beginning and He doesn't have an end. We can't even really draw an illustration. But let us just consider once for a moment what eternity means and eternal means. If, you, if I had a rope up here and I had 
some tape on it about this far down the rope. And I had a rope, and it stretched from here to, well, you could go all the way to California. No, let's, let's go all the way to the moon. And then let's come back, and then let's, let's go back, and let's go to Mars, and then let's go come back, and then, then let's go to the farthest galaxy. And that rope would be a long rope, wouldn't it? And we only have this much of it blocked off as what we're going to call time. Now, that little block of time, compared to that rope that goes trillions of miles long, that little foot of rope is just the beginning of eternity. Can I comprehend it? I can't comprehend as a creature of time, what eternity is. Our God is an eternal God. There, there was never a time before the world was created that God was not. And there will never be a time that God will not be after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ again. I can know this truth from the Bible, but I cannot comprehend it. I cannot comprehend it. And yet God says, my name is forever. And this is a memorial to all generations that I am the eternal God, the everlasting God, a God who has created time and a God who, who exercises us in time. But yet this God who is not bound to time. He is the I am. Who I am. He has always existed and he forever will exist. And, and God doesn't. God doesn't. Uh, God doesn't just think that. We should comprehend it. And because we find in Proverbs chapter 3 that God has also created us not only in time, but he, in, in, sorry, Ecclesiastes 3, but that he set eternity on our hearts. And so, in a certain sense, God has also created us with some intuition or understanding of what eternity is because he set eternity in our hearts. But what we recognize, first and foremost, is that God is not subject to time. He is the creator of time. Well, what does that mean for us today, practically? Well, practically, we could go back to Exodus 3. God, from eternity, knew that Israel would go into Egypt. He promised that even to Abraham some 300 years before. And now Israel is in Egypt, as God has promised. But God has also promised to deliver them. And so God's eternal counsels, his eternal plan, his eternal salvation is all bound up in who he is as our eternal God, the I am who I am. 
And all of his promises and all of his purposes in, in time are all completely and perfectly and even minutely to the very last detail accomplished in time for eternity. And so therefore, the word of God can say, in the fullness of time, he gave his only begotten son, the I am, for sin, to be a savior for sinners. Think about this now again. Exodus chapter 3. Moses and God are having this conversation. That, and God has told Moses to go and tell his people that, that the deliverance is near. And God... And Moses is wondering how the people would believe that God would send him. And he says, the I am sent you. And what Moses here is doing is, is he's, he's commissioned to be a mediator between God and the Israelites. Just as Jesus Christ also would become a mediator between God and us. And so God says, the I am sent you. But Moses, there's going to be a greater I am who's coming that will be a, not only an encouragement for Israel, but for all the nations of this world. And he's going to come and he's going to tell you that before Abraham, I was, I am. And he's going to say that I am the bread of life. And for Egyptians who are, who are eating the bread of sorrows and afflictions, you can come to the bread of life because he is the I am. And for those who are in the bondage of darkness, he says, I am the light of the world. And for those who don't know that there's a door of escape from the bondage in Egypt, he says, I am the door. And for those who need a shepherd, not only Moses to be their shepherd, but he says to them, those wandering sheep, those sheep that are scattered as those without a shepherd, that I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd will never fail. To those who are in the grips of death and the bondage of it, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He comes to those who don't know the way and don't know the truth. He says, I am the truth and the life. Israel, you are going to learn my truth as you go to Mount Horeb. You're going to see my truth as I nourish you with the life that I give through the bread that comes down from heaven, from the water that flows from the rock. I am the truth and the life. I am the vine. And when you're united to me, the Almighty One, the I am who I am, I will be with you. I will be with you in the cloud that leads you during the day, and with the pillar of fire by night, I am with you. The I am has sent you. And what an encouragement for us in the wilderness of our life, in the bondage of our sins, in the bondage of who we are by nature, to know that the I am comes with God's eternal salvation, for He's given His eternal Son, the I am, to save sinners of whom I am chief. To be ready to be our shepherd, our door, our father, our life, our vine, our light, the bread of life, and our very truth. The I am, the eternal one. He is a savior of sinners. And he gives an everlasting, eternal salvation. 
And that is our security as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall, or He was, and He shall forever be God. He is the one who He claims to be. The I am who I am. He's in control of all the circumstances. He changes not. He doesn't make any mistakes. He's perfect in all things because He is eternal. Moses and Israel, they would need to learn patience. But that they could learn day by day that God never lingers too far behind. And He never, he never, he never comes before He's actually needed. Every detail of their lives and every detail of our lives are ordered by God before time even began. Because God is eternal and He's above time and He's created time. That's why our salvation is secure in God because He is eternal. Would you want to be saved by a God who's not eternal? A God who might not be here tomorrow? A God who would have the possibility of dying? Would you want to be saved by a God who's not here in one trillion years? No, we want to be saved by a God who is the I am who I am. The one who is eternal, who is above time, and who's created time and who is eternal in all of his attributes. There was never a time when God wasn't perfectly holy and just and loving. There wasn't ever a time when God was not everywhere present. There wasn't a time when God didn't know all things and bring all things according to his will into being. And so we can know that God will eternally and everlastingly fulfill all of his purposes. He will bring them all to completion. And we can know that God indeed does work all things, not just some things, but all things, perfectly, according to His will, and for our good, for those who love God, and for those who are called according to His purpose. Not even death itself can pluck me out of my eternal Father's hands. Not even death itself can take me away from my Savior because He is an eternal Savior. And He will bring me not only across the Red Sea, out of Egypt, through the wilderness, but He will bring me across the Jordan into the promised land where I will dwell with Him, the I am who I am, for all eternity. But let me tell you, the eternal character of God, the eternal attribute of God, a comfort in life and in death, but equally terrifying and awesome in its dreadfulness for all those outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. For God's eternal existence guarantees that the wicked will never come to an end of their anguish in hell. They will never escape the eternal punishment and condemnation of an eternal God. And so, dear congregation, I ask you in love and tenderness and yet with earnestness, what will you do in the day 
of his anger and the day of his wrath and the day where you have to stand before a righteous and a holy God to face the fierceness of his eternal indignation against sin. Oh, dear congregation, he is unchangeably eternal. And once the market day of, and the time of free grace is shut, there will be no second chances for those on that day. Because God, His eternity lasts through an eternal hell. And so therefore, as Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men and we direct them to the one who says, I am the truth, I am the life. And who says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. No, but that the world through him might be saved unto an everlasting salvation. And so today is the day of grace. And today the great I am comes. And he says, I have sent you to tell my people I am who I am. A God who saves to the uttermost all who come to me. And so come, come to him. Come to the one who's lifted up. Not as that serpent lifted up in the wilderness, but as the one who's hung on the cross to die in the fullness of time to be bound. And to die for our sins, but also to be raised unto eternal life for all who put their trust in Him. Today, there's still time. Today is the time. But there's a day coming when time no longer will be. But time will be swallowed up in eternity. And there we come face to face with the I am who I am. Behold the I am who I am. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks that you have revealed yourself to us as the I am who I am. A God who we cannot comprehend. And yet a God who makes himself known as an eternal Savior of sinners. And so we come to you, O Lord Jesus, for you have said, I am. And the I am who will reconcile us to God. May you go forth by the power of your Spirit to convict us of our sins and our shortcomings, of our sorrows and our darkness and, and our waywardness and show us the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, bless us and our families throughout this week. And may we gather together in worship to you next Lord's Day. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.